Welcome to the Resist Bob podcast, hosted by me, Melanie Dion. Join me this week and every week as I chat with the advocates and activists in your neighborhood at the intersection where policy meets people. Now, let's start the show. And once again, it's time for the Resist Bot podcast. I am your host, Melanie Dion, welcoming you back after post-election, post-holiday hiatus. I um, hope you took care of yourself. I was busy turning 46, so happy birthday to me. I know that a lot of you, since last time we met, you got out there to stop the red wave that couldn't, and I appreciate you for that. But the work continues. There are still a lot of things going on. One of the things we're going to discuss a little later on in the show, but I want to jump right into it. A, you know I'm not great at small talk, but also B, I'm very excited for this week's episode. We are shifting the lens a little bit overseas, and so of course I am having my favorite international woman of mystery as a guest, friend Christine Liu. Hi, Christine. Hey, Mel. Good to see you or hear from you, I should say. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to have you back around the way. How have you been? I have been good. I have been busy and I can't Mm -hmm. believe we're already at the end of the year and we're hearing Mariah Carey in the department stores again. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And it's terrible for me now because I'm in New Orleans and so everybody's in shorts. Like I looked outside, my neighbors are walking around in shorts, carrying like Christmas presents and putting up decorations. It's It's really like a mine. Yeah, mm-hmm. this this year has flown by, but I am good. Thank you for having me back. News has been eventful. Yes, understatement. So, <laughs> understatement. I mean, there's always something, of course. But with that always something, there has been a lot going on in China. So before we get into the actual protests, I want to talk a little bit about something that you are passionate about. And I always appreciate your insight on this when we talk about relations between China and Taiwan or Taiwan and China. When the conversation, when we talk about, for example, Ukraine and Russia, everybody can identify with that. But people don't always connect that there's a very similar dynamic between Taiwan and China in that you are an independent democracy and China kind of bogarts the conversation a bit. And so... I want to talk a little bit first about the rising aggression that we've seen against Taiwan from China. And I'll start here. We saw the visit from Nancy Pelosi and how it has seemed to pick up in intensity since then. But I want to get your thoughts first on that. When With that part of the conversation, do you find that it's more of pretext or do you think that's more of this is when people really started paying attention, but this has been bubbling under the surface? Yeah, I think those that have been paying attention to international relations and especially the U.S.-China-Taiwan triangle of relations, it's been bubbling for decades. It's why you have people call themselves China watchers, because they're paying attention to what's going on over there. I think from a U.S.-centric lens, it may feel like Taiwan has come out of nowhere and has been in the news constantly. I think that is a byproduct of the U.S. and China relations no longer being as friendly as it was in the last decade leading up to Trump administration when you saw a shift in the tone. And the same goes for Xi Jinping, the current 
and now potentially forever, <laughs> forever leader now that he has cemented himself for a third and indefinite term. The relations are going to reflect that. And unfortunately, when that happens, Taiwan usually gets brought up on both sides. You see China becoming more aggressive in terms of their stance so they could signal to the U.S. and the world that they are going to maintain their policy and approach to Taiwan like they say they always have, which they claim Taiwan is part of China, which it's not. And then you have the U.S. needing to counterbalance that. But when people take notice of really, you know, that media storm that came about where people were literally following her plane when Nancy Pelosi went to visit, that has a lot to do with, I think, also people's feelings about the domestic politics here and how divided we are here, where if Nancy Pelosi is hopping on a plane, you better believe that, you know, the Republicans are going to make, you know, something of it that is going to fit their narrative. And then even within the Democratic wing, you're going to see folks who, you know, don't necessarily think she represents where Democrats should be going. They're going to pay attention and have their narrative. And then in the midst of all this, though, you still need to maintain this foreign policy of engagement where this happened. And a lot of the media and the conversation around it kind of misses this. Her visit as speaker coincided with the passing of the CHIPS Act. You don't really hear that. You hear the what's Nancy Pelosi doing, stirring up trouble, getting on a plane and going to Taiwan. What you don't hear is, oh, she's the speaker. We just passed a monumental CHIPS Act that's going to bring back jobs and technology and manufacturing of semiconductor, which means we will be less reliant on overseas production. And given that we can't do this without Taiwan, because a lot of people don't know this, 90% of the world's semiconductors, advanced semiconductors, are manufactured in Taiwan. So who has the know-how? Who's helping the U.S. right now build these new fabs that they call it, right? These semiconductor manufacturing facilities in Arizona, right? That's going to need 1,500 highly skilled engineers, five years and $12 billion, I believe, to build the Taiwanese. <laughs> so I think in given that from that lens, people should know that this is just U.S. diplomacy in action. Right. And, and then we start adding all our other meaning to it. That's kind of how I saw it. I appreciate you bringing that up, because one of the things that I see when we have these conversations as Americans, there are the people who are just going to side, you know, with America first, with Western values, with Christian values, et cetera. There are also those people who have a more skeptical lens. Right. And often those people fall on the left and are not always going to line up with American, maybe not necessarily enemies, but people at odds with American ideology, they will not always be lockstep with that conversation. And sometimes that will lead to those folks siding, you know, with that government. And it especially happens when the government is non-white, when the government is non-Christian. You see that a lot. So in a case like this, when we're dealing with a country like China, who is under scrutiny, who receives criticism from the U.S., and we see people on the left who may unwittingly side with authoritarians. How do you approach that? How do you engage that 
and maybe give them ideas of how to suss out when, hey, this is American BS. You know, this is this is kind of some some BS, but this is authoritarianism. And I think we can agree that that's all bad. Like, how do you encourage that? And I'm asking you this not only because you're you and you're my friend and you're smart, because you're also a Taiwanese woman. So you know how this affects from a personal level. Right. Definitely. As someone who's Taiwanese American, right? So I'm both Taiwanese and American. I have no choice but to see it from different lenses. And we were just talking about that off the air. We often talk about, you know, in every issue, we we need to be mindful that we bring our own lens to it. So Americans, speaking in you know general terms, tend to bring our American lens and all its domestic politics and all your feelings and need to be right. And we keep that lens when we're looking outward towards other countries and what they're dealing with. And so first, I would say when I see that, you know, again, I think it's maybe a construct of age. <laughs> I'm no longer that 20 something year old that just, you know, has to be right all the time. You kind of take a pause and you realize where it's coming from, where this misunderstanding or this need to have and stick with a narrative to the point where you have an inability to listen and see a bigger picture. You first acknowledge that. Okay, let's acknowledge that. That's that's what we're dealing with here. But then it's usually what I say to those situations. It's a reminder that we are so damn lucky. We live in a democracy that we even have the freedom to do that. I actually don't mind when people challenge whatever it is they want to challenge with the U.S. government. I totally get it. Oftentimes I'm on their side. If you talk about the domestic issues, we can all relate to where people are coming from. It's when people don't realize that it is possible. This is what I say. It's possible to be critical of your own government and hold them accountable while at the same time not propping up authoritarian countries who oppress their citizens in order to do that. You can be critical of your own government and also want people who live under authoritarian governments to have the same freedoms that you do. And in the case of Taiwan, we have that now and we don't want to give that up. We don't want to go, quote unquote, back or reunify, quote unquote. I say that in quotes because it's all propaganda to unify or reunify, they always say, with China, because many Taiwanese don't even see ourselves as part of China. But, you know, again, and you made a great point, oftentimes Americans, U.S. government is really, you know, (laughs) and their policy, their foreign policy is really good at this. You don't actually see the people and the will of the people. Everyone's playing chess for their own win. Right. So what happens when you have two superpowers, the U.S. and China now on terms that are more competitive, they call it, rather than friendly? Taiwan is the pawn. Right. And what happens is it causes people to not even see what Taiwanese people want for themselves. So that's kind of where I find it important. And many other Taiwanese Americans who have a voice, who can speak in the language of people who may understand better. It's important for us to have our own voice to remind people, no, actually, this is why we don't consider ourselves part of China 
This is the history of our people. This is the history of our people that actually I didn't even grow up learning in the U.S., our education system, because we had a certain narrative. And it's much more complicated than people think it would take way more time. So I advise you go look up a Wikipedia page, you know, and let's start there. Right. You know, and so that would be my approach to it. Thank you for that. We have that inclination as Americans to play world police, even when we don't intend and even when we think we're not on the side of wrong, when we think we're on the side of right. There's still that that inclination to speak almost over people who know what's going on. So with you as a Taiwanese American, with that knowledge that you have, How does that inform discourse when you are being the word I think you used earlier was Taiwan Splain? How does that, how do you, A, deal with that yourself? And what do you encourage people who may unwittingly do that? What do you encourage them to, how they should redirect maybe the conversation a bit or their their line of thinking in addition to you know the things you've you've mentioned before well i think for us as taiwanese people we're just so used to it and so you almost are surprised when people actually want to take the time to listen because oftentimes it's an afterthought or it's something they haven't given thought to. So all of a sudden it's new, it's in the news and they're just going to go with the news sources or the headlines or the narrative that they maybe trust or they're used to hearing and then adopt that as their own. So I just would say, listen, and it's so much, it sounds so much easier said than done, but people need to listen to the voices of Taiwanese people in the same way people need to listen to the voices of Uyghur people in China and the people of Hong Kong who no longer recognize Hong Kong they grew up in because it's much different now. And even let's dovetail to the recent protest of young Chinese who are living in China and living and working outside of China, who are finding their voice because they've been silenced or self-censored for many years. And we haven't heard this side that's coming out in the last week. And it's also surprising people. I think people should listen more. I absolutely agree because I can't remember anything kind of on this scale. And it does not mean that my brain is not skipping something out. But we've talked about this before. My introduction to protest in action where, you know, not not learning about in history books or hearing about it, but actually seeing the progression of it was Tiananmen Square when I was 11, 12 years old. So that was where I was aware enough to know what was going on, comprehend what was going on and see the seriousness of it. So in watching this repeat, or not necessarily repeat, but watching this and knowing how this can escalate. Can you talk a little bit? Because you have an awareness of how this goes and we've talked about it a little bit. But can you talk about what it is like, even when Chinese students are in America? Can you talk about what that's like, what protesting for them is like even here? We won't even get into China yet, but here. Yeah, well, you'll see this in the news, right? In the last week, Chinese students in campuses across the U.S. and also in front of their own consulates, their own Chinese consulates are protesting what has gone on in the past week. And prior to that, the reason why we didn't hear a lot is because, quite frankly, the risks of doing so was very high. So if you think about what we're seeing now, knowing that 
the risk is high and they know the risk is high, something has got to give. And I do remember Tiananmen Square. I was 13 years old watching it live on CNN unfold and the buildup of it and kind of feeling initially this hope of, oh my gosh, it's amazing that so many young Chinese really want reform and democracy. And then to see the aftermath of how the government reacted to it. The interesting thing I want to remind people, this generation of young Chinese have no memory or recollection or even reference to Tiananmen Square. So they don't even know. It's not something that's taught when they grow up. I have had students that didn't even know about Tiananmen Square until they were in their early 20s and they came to the U.S. for school. That is how censored the news and how revisionist the history is in that country. So what you're seeing in terms of the protests right now And the protests are very creative because now we have social media and word travels fast and people understand that their government is very repressive when it comes to information control and censorship. They're getting creative. That's why you're seeing them hold up this blank paper because they're very aware of being censored all their life. They have learned to survive in their government the look the other way and you may have a normal life. You can drink your Starbucks. You can drive your Teslas. You can go to the movies and watch Hollywood movies. You can, you know, even go to a nightclub and have fun with your friends at the mall. As long as you stay away from certain topics and you don't talk about certain things that maybe make you feel uncomfortable, but you know, it's not affecting you personally. So mind your own business, live a great life and let the government do their thing. That has been what this generation has grown up doing until the last three years with these very strict zero COVID policies that China has enacted. Of course, the official line is it's to protect the citizens from COVID. But I think most people going on year four now realize it's not to do with that. And it's perhaps more to do with using COVID and zero COVID policies as a way to keep a population under control at a time when they're not happy because the economy is not doing so well anymore, because the they don't feel like they have the freedom because people are really hurting with these, you know, lockdowns. And then they watch the rest of the world, especially this past week with the World Cup. The rest of the world looks like they're just back to normal and something's going to give with that. And sure enough, you know, a lot of people don't know the source of these this flare up. But, you know, when people are at their last straw, even though it's been bubbling up, it's what you see with the deaths that have happened in, in Xinjiang, in Urumuchi. The Uyghurs who burned alive and died in that building kids, families. I think as a result of being under lockdown for 100 days, I think that was a tipping point. And I realized a lot of what I was reading is that the policies, the lockdown policies seem to have delayed the firefighters to help. Oh, is that is that the Yes. And the fact that I don't know if you see these videos when they do COVID zero, they're not giving you a text message saying everybody stay at home like kind of they did with us right here in the U.S. And even that was too much. They are physically going and sealing your apartment building, your doors. You cannot actually leave your 
and it's not even the front of your apartment complex. It's your individual door. So you tell me what happens when a fire breaks out. This has always been the fear, actually. And now the fear has been realized. And officially speaking, the report has been 10 deaths. But, you know, a lot of people don't always trust the official numbers, if you will, of casualties. I think that's a byproduct of just the time we live in Mm -hmm. now when there has been authoritarianism crossed with corruption. What's real? What do you believe? Who do you listen to? So I can't imagine that that type of distrust helped sentiment at all. So that's where we are. I think it's something here in the U.S. where we didn't have policies anywhere near as strict as that. We are not okay. There is just this overwhelming sense. I mean, there is the depression, the loss, the grief that is still being combined with trying to move forward and and, and act like life is normal. So I cannot imagine what it's like when you are still dealing with lockdowns. This isn't the American complaint of lockdowns where people just suggest you maybe get socially criticized. This is a legal government backed lockdown. Oh, I don't know if people understand. Imagine, again, makes you feel lucky to live in the country we do. Imagine a lockdown where your phone has a health code that your movement and your ability to navigate in your society is dependent on if you have a health code that is either red, yellow, or green. (laughs) And you have to show that wherever you... And if it is red or yellow, you can't access anything. You can't access buildings. You can't go shopping. You can't ride the subway. You can't go to work. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. So this has been going on for the last several years. And it's not letting up. And and then you combine the fact that not everyone in China has the ability to stock up on two weeks worth of food. So there was food insecurity going on. And a lot of people who were able to get the food, guess what? Are we surprised? We're privileged people with money who lived in really fancy apartments and had the means to self-organize and get on these apps and order food online and have it delivered. What about the elderly? What about the less educated? You know, uh, what about the folks that don't know how to navigate the world in that way. So it really became an issue. And I think people collectively are just fed up. And that's why we're at a point where it's something so far, there have been 20 identified demonstrations to the point that apparently now police are being or are checking phones to see if you have things like telegram or signal to disseminate information. What makes what you said to me a little earlier, just a little more chilling when I think about Something that was so impactful for me in understanding protests and seeing protests at Tiananmen Square and knowing that there are people who do not have access to that information. And just kind of doing the math, we're thinking about the children of, you know, of that generation. How quickly history like that can be lost is absolutely chilling to me. And as some, you know, as as someone, when we look at the country that we live in now, where we have these arguments about critical race theory and, and and how books are being banned and things like that. When you look at how quickly you can lose history, how quickly you can lose something that is still accessible, like this is accessible on the internet, but for a, an entire country. Yeah. Imagine your learned history is then dependent on the stories you pass down from people off the record because it doesn't exist in your history books or officially according to the government, like 
Tiananmen Square did not exist. <laughs> it is the official government stance. When we all, like we, the rest of the world is being gaslit when we hear that, because uh, we remember it. Mm-hmm. We saw it, but you do have a generation. I will say this, though, on the flip side, imagine being able to successfully do that as an authoritarian government and wipe monumental event in your history off the books and still 30 years later have young students demonstrating and protesting and rising up. That is probably causing a lot of concern for this government right now. It should be a light bulb moment because you cannot crush the human spirit, even if they believe that they're going to if they're going to be the first ones to do it, then to hell with it. We're just going to be the first ones. And that's astounding. You know, it's commendable as you know, as someone who is older and who has seen it. Of course, I have a, a strong level of concern because we live in a world that has not gotten less violent. People have not gotten kinder. Oh, absolutely. For us, we're those of us who are old enough to look at this. The feeling has been very mixed. It's both inspired. Yeah. And it's scared for them. Yes. So I'm not going to candy coat that. It's a mix of feelings where you're inspired. You're reminded of, you know, I often say over and over like a broken record to remind people that the Chinese government is not the Chinese people and to not see the two as such. And it's because I have the privilege of having had experience and deep decades worth of relationships there where I have these conversations. So there's the Chinese government and the propaganda that they've been putting out for the last several years. And then there's the Chinese people that I know and that many of us, I'm sure in our lives have known, who have a different voice, but they don't feel like they can voice their opinion because there is consequences to them doing so by their own government. And we need to remember that. And so just taking it back very locally, like I said, even though this is this looks like a foreign policy issue, you will see this play out. You're seeing it play out in our own backyard here in the U.S. on college campuses because over 600,000 Chinese students study overseas around the world. Many of them, you know, around two, three hundred thousand here in the U.S. You can't ignore. You're going to see the effects of that. These kids are either going to find their voice because thankfully we give them a taste of (laughs) during their time here of what it's like to be able to express ourselves without fear of disappearing. Those kind of consequences that they face back home. Or you're going to also see their government extending their reach to censor and silence them. They have their systems. Just look at the news recently. I don't know if people have been paying attention, but they've discovered over the last several years overseas Chinese police stations have been set up in different countries around the world. That is not to help you with your passport or driver's license. That is to literally keep tabs on their citizens and the dissidents because, you know, it's kind of like having somebody who's over controlling, making sure that when you're overseas playing in the backyard of democratic countries, that you don't get any bright ideas to bring some of those ideas to back home and undermine your control. This is some serious stuff. And I'm sure there's also the reminder because they have, even though they're here, their families, they still have family at home. Exactly. So I'm sure that's also a factor in how people can be threatened, Mm -hmm. uh, basically to behave. Yeah, you haven't fun in America, but your mama still lives here. That has got to be something that is chilling and sobering and unfortunately likely very effective. 
I'll never forget on Clubhouse back, you know, when everyone was on lockdown, it was very popular to get on. There was a 19-year-old student in San Diego, a Chinese student, who didn't even create a room about anything controversial, but simply offered his opinion on something. And soon enough, his social media was doxxed. His parents got a call from the police in China, even though this kid was <laughs> in San Diego in a clubhouse room doing what 19-year-olds do when they're in the U.S. on social media. But I just want to make people aware of that because that is also why we haven't heard too much coming from this generation that was told to go global. And they did. They These Chinese uh, young students went global, studied English, went overseas, started working here, internationalized, and then all of a sudden your government, it's almost unrecognizable. Imagine that. Actually, we can't imagine that because that was four years under Trump. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? But imagine. And it's it's amazing how those small changes that almost seem incremental can become very drastic in the blink of an eye. So looking at things like that as an American who, you know, oh, that couldn't happen here. Yes, the hell it could. I appreciate. It almost did. So many times it still can. Mm -hmm. Well, when we look at how systems are, one of my friends says something that always sticks in my head, no matter what, that institutions are as steadfast or as trash as the people who are upholding them. And that is you can have whatever rules and guidelines you like. But if the people who are upholding those guidelines don't have good motives, then those guidelines are going to, they're susceptible to corruption. They're susceptible to be twisted. They're susceptible to be turned into something that you probably didn't sign up for. So that's something that I don't think any of us, even as as Americans, you know, we can't just be comfortable and say, "Mm, couldn't be me. It could absolutely be you. And it probably should concern you how quickly it can be. And that's why while you have a voice, you use it. As long as you have the voice, it's important that you use it and not take that for granted because there are a lot of people who cannot. Absolutely. I'm looking at what's going on, speaking of people who are using their voice in the and bringing it back home. We've got the rail workers union that I'm still learning about. I'm, I am not a pundit. I am not a union or labor expert. There are a lot of people who I've been begging to come on the show to, to talk labor because I it's always kind of like a fascinating thing to me. I've always done like at-will employment and that type of thing. But my dad was a union guy. And so that's always been a, almost like a different, different life to me. And so we're looking at the Rail Workers Union and the dispute between something as serious as sick time that they realized became, was a bigger deal than they thought it was during COVID and how negotiations have stalled. And today, Joe Biden had a meeting with the majority and minority leaders in Congress and are pushing for legislation to avert the strike. And what that looks like, how, of course, you know, Joe Biden, labor president or pro-labor president, how that has put him at odds with that. So one of the things that I am doing is, A, learning what the hell I'm talking about, <laughs> because I don't, I'm, I'm still learning about how unions function because the, just to give a kind of brief breakdown, there are 12 unions who voted, eight of the unions agreed, four, and I think there are three or four rather large didn't. 
And so now we're at this, there's an impasse. And so Congress has gotten involved. You know, everyone is saying that they, of course, they don't want to force people to work. They don't want to stand in the way of laborers, but also talking about the implications of the supply chain, what it can do to the economy. And it's, for me, it's placed me at a big crossroads. I understand the purpose, but I also know that something like sick time is not something that workers should have to fight over. And so one of the things that we do have right now is a petition by our friend Jess Craven. It is Real Workers Deserve Fair Pay and Time Off. If you'd like to support that petition and let your senator, let your representative know that you are in support of Real Workers, you can text PZPAKG to 50409 or you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or Telegram or I believe Instagram now. We're integrated with Instagram. So those are ways that you can support rail workers or, or let your representatives know how you feel about this, about the strike and how you would like them to act. It is something that requires quick action. I believe the agreement is only going to hold until December 9th and we're just over a week out from that. But this is not something, yes, a strike should, yes, we agree that a strike is bad, but we also agree that people should be compensated fairly and, you know, have time off. And especially sick time when we're dealing with, I can't, like, I'm losing count of how many pandemics do we have, how many things do we have. We've got, what, the RSV with the kids. We've got COVID. We're about to approach flu season. This is a basic. So if they're that important to industry, they should be important enough to make sure that they're also cared for when they get sick. Because more times than not, we get sick on the job. We spend more time there than with our families, more times than not. So that's something for those of you who are in support of that. Again, that's P-Z-P-A-K-G. And as usual, thank you, Jess, for this petition. Outside of that state side, we've also got the Georgia runoffs going on. If you have submitted your request for your early ballot you can track it by texting track to 50409. ResistBot will help you make sure that it's gotten where it needs to go. And if your ballot needs to be cured, it'll take care of that for you too. I want to thank all of you for joining me. Christine, thank you. It feels like old times. Thank <laughs> you for so, having me. It's great to be on again. I am so glad to A, talk to you. And you know, I love talking to you about international stuff because you always are able to put that in sort of a container that I can digest with my scatterbrain. And so if you can do it for me, I know a lot of other people are really benefiting from that. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate the lens that you put on it. Not only as somebody who has an awareness, but as somebody with a personal stake and knowledge of what is actually going on and how that affects you as a Taiwanese American, how that affects you as a person who still has family in both places and the parallels between there and here and how fragile democracy can be. So thank you so much for joining. I want to thank all of you for joining us as well. We are going to be back next Thursday. I also want to want you to remind you that I am on Instagram Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with Mel's Midday Mug. Stop by midday, have a cup of coffee, and we will catch up on current events and the most popular petitions. If you would like to, if you like us, if you like me, if you like what we are doing, text donate 
to 50409 and support ResistBot because we are able to work because you help us. So I want to thank you again for joining and I will see you next time. The ResistBot podcast is a production of ResistBot Action Fund, a social welfare nonprofit organization. ResistBot is funded by monthly donors like you. Support ResistBot by texting DONATE to 50409. You can learn more and see a complete guide to using the service, a real-time list of trending petitions, learn how to organize your own pressure campaigns, or launch your own voter pledge drives at www.resist.bot. Thanks so much for joining, and we'll see you next week.